Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Well, bless God. Did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? That's it. Just the blessings on how we just so much need them. And I was thinking about, God talked to me about Deuteronomy 8, how when we come to the land, we think it's by the power and the strength of our hands that we have this wealth or resources. But he's like, no, I give it to you, I trust it to you. And that's how you have it. But we need his blessing, but we need him. Mm-hmm. His blessing is good, but what I'm saying is we need him. Right. So the, about that. Bless us. Bless America. Thank you. Your yeah. Yeah, the pursuit is him and the blessing comes from relationship with him and from his presence. Yeah. Amen. I asked Chris if this was a part of his message and he said no, so I'm not stealing his message. But <laughs> last night I was just feeling a little bit heavy with all the things that are going on in the world right now and uh, and I laid down a little bit early and got out the Bible and I was like well, I just need some hope or some encouragement or something you know and I really felt like the Lord spoke to me and said have you read the Haftarah for this week which is the, the reading from the prophets for the, the weekly cycle and I was like you know, I haven't read it I had no idea what it was I thought he was like read it I was like, okay. And so I read it. It was from 1 Kings 1, and it was about the attempted coup by Adonijah when Adonijah came in and illegitimately stole the throne. And all of you know the wicked were celebrating with Adonijah because it looked like it was a done deal. He was king. He was wearing the crown. They were feasting. It looked like David was about to die, and it was a, a done deal. And all of a sudden, David's like, Nathan the prophet comes in, Bathsheba comes in, and they're like, do you know what's happening? David's like, no, Solomon will be king. And he gets anointed king, and in an instant, the whole thing is overturned, where it looked like it was hopeless. And here, Solomon is, is crowned king, and all of Israel is rejoicing with him. And so, I was just thinking about that, both term, you know, maybe some immediate implications, but also just thinking about ultimately, who is the son of David? Solomon is the son of David. We're waiting on the son of David, Yeshua, to come, and he's going to overturn the whole system of the wicked in an instant. When it looks like there's no hope, he's just going to flip it. It's, it's going to be done. Amen. Amen. And I was going to work that in to the end of the message. <laughs> after after we talked, you know. <laughs> it's like that very much fits with the, the overall message, but I had not planned on bringing that part in. But it's good. Oh, it's, it's probably still coming. We'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll, see, where, we'll see where we go. <laughs> Anyone else? I just have to say, we have such a good community here, and that everybody loves each other, and that everybody supports each other, no matter what happens and stuff like that, we're all here for each other. And it's been said to me, and I want to say that if anybody ever needs anything, I'm here for you no matter what. And I just want to say that 
thank God that God's brought you guys in my life and along the way this place. Amen. Thank you, Ben, for sharing that. Yes. Amen. Very much so. All right. So this week our portion is Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. And we're in Genesis 23. And with what Michael shared, I feel like uh, the overall message this week is along the same lines and that we're strangers in a strange land, right? When we think about the aspect that we are aliens and sojourners in this world, we're looking to the coming kingdom, right? Um, and sometimes when I hear that that phrase of someone saying, you know, well, I'm just a, a stranger in this world, it's usually said when things are going bad and somebody says, well, this isn't, we're of a, of a different world, right? And whenever I read that, I'm always kind of like, ah, you know, and the reason why I kind of cringe at that is the idea of, it sounds kind of passive, like, a, well, this world's really not looking good, but at least I'm a resident of a different world, right? But that's not really the attitude that we're to have. The, the thing of, we're not residents of this world, like we are residents of the kingdom of God. Our responsibility is to cause the kingdom of God to flourish here on the earth, right? Recognizing that, yeah, we are different. We're supposed to be different. Our kingdom is, the kingdom that we are citizens of is a higher kingdom, and we want that kingdom here on the earth today manifest in the greatest measure that it can be even now. Not saying, okay, I'm just going to sit back and wait until that kingdom happens to appear, and yeah, it's looking bad, but I don't know, whatever. (laughs) Eventually in God's time, he'll come, right? But no, it's, no, we, we pursue righteousness we pursue truth and we we do this all in love um in a love that is based in truth not based in the world's view of love and we'll probably talk about that more later on but um the love of god is quite different than the world's definition of love okay fine we'll just go ahead and talk about it (laughs) so the world's definition of love is simply okay i Okay, I'll, I'll say this. It's acceptance. Okay? But it's not totally just acceptance. Okay, so it's acceptance. Hey, just love me and accept me for who I am and whatever I want to be, however I want to define it. Right? That's, that's kind of how love has been pitched by the world. But love in God's terms is there's an acceptance and a transformation. Right? Because while we were yet sinners... Yeshua died for us, and God demonstrated his love through that. So there was this acceptance and this love of of us as the creation. But he said, now, my son has died for you. Now I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not be conformed to this world. Okay? And so God, he shows kindness and love with truth. And the truth being to draw people who have strayed from the truth back to him such that they can be one. Right? Because those who are not of the truth cannot be one with God who is truth. Okay? Now, the thing is, the definition I gave of the world, the world's definition of love being acceptance, 
is probably what that definition was five or ten years ago. I don't know how long ago. Maybe it was even just two years ago. We know a lot can change in two years. And uh, the thing is, it used to be, no, just love everybody, right? And just with this kind of, uh, I don't know, undefined. But now the, the definition of love is acceptance as long as it's counter to the truth. Because not only do you have to accept, but you must actually reject that which is good. Does that make sense? So God's definition of love is kindness and truth. The world's definition is kindness and the opposite of truth, the rejection of truth. Where it's not acceptable to follow the truth, right? And this is the whole thing. There's a progression of evil and wickedness. And it's always by measure, ever increasing. This is the way it's always been. Evil works their way in with a, a toehold, which becomes a foothold, which then becomes a stronghold. Right? So you, so you go back, okay, what I see happening in the world today, man, Michael, you got me started. <laughs> okay, so in a year and a half, we've gone from 15 days to flatten the curve to show me your papers. Right? We talk about remembering the Holocaust so, so that things, so that we would never forget, so it can never be repeated. But yet it's happening today. And it's not just to one nation or in one nation, it's worldwide. And it's all about a power grab and trying to establish the kingdom of this world and to eradicate the kingdom of God. That is the agenda that is at play. And so you see. It's the same playbook that was carried out by the Nazis where they began to afflict the Jewish people and say, oh, well, you know what? You can't work or have a business or you can't shop in this place. Now you need to wear a star. And now, you know what we're going to do? We're going to resettle you. Who doesn't know that resettlement is somewhere down the line if this current trend does not stop, it's a sad truth, right? But the reality is that there is hope, just as Michael was talking about. Even when things look as though, as though there is not, God is still on the throne. He's still in control. One of the things that I was thinking about yesterday quite a bit, um, and actually I mentioned it to Michael last night, um, last December I think it was, I had a, I had a, uh, several things happened where, well, anyway, I'll tell one. So in the shower, I had a small piece of soap, okay? And the small piece of soap fell. You know, like I, I went to grab it and, it and it fell and I saw it falling and then it disappeared. Okay? And so I looked and I'm like, I don't know where it went, right? And... So then I was like, well, maybe it went down the drain, and oh, maybe it stuck on the wall. I kept, I'd, I'd look really hard for it, and I couldn't find it, and then I was like, oh, well, whatever, go on. And then later on, I'm like, man, where did that thing go? I'm going <laughs> to, this thing, because it fell so far away from the drain, and not even where any water was falling, that it couldn't have been washed into the drain, you know, so I, I couldn't, so I looked on the wall, looked on the ground, everything, I'm like, okay, I can't find it, I don't know what's going on. 
And then I'm standing there a little bit longer, and I'm just staring at the ground. I'm thinking, probably talking to the Lord. And the piece of soap just appeared on the ground right at the place that I was looking. It just instantly was there. And I was like, what I felt like the Lord was saying to me in this situation was that hope had been lost. Hope was totally lost. It was gone. Could not find it. But then in an instant, that hope can return. And so I was thinking just a lot on that yesterday. Just saying, you know, what's this timeline in which hope is restored? Is hope all, all gone? Like, because I was thinking about it in my perspective. It's like, have I lost hope to the point where it would be so shocking for this to just reappear? And I, I, don't, I didn't come to a conclusion on that. So I was like, no, I could, have, I could be more hopeless. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, um, yeah. So the, the thing is that there is hope. There is restoration. And even though we may not see it, we need to be able to look and say, no, God is still going to bring about his promises. He's still going to bring about a restoration. Now, the timing may not be exactly in the timing that we want, but then again, it could be any time. So there's, there's definitely a hope. Um, so we'll, we may come back to some of those things, but we'll, we'll leave that there for now. And, uh, and we'll talk about this idea about being a stranger in a strange land because our land has become very strange. But then the question is, what do we do in response to all of that? So let's read in Genesis 23. We'll start out in verses 1 through 9. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar. And it, okay, so basically what happened here, Abraham then worked out the deal with Ephron to purchase the land. But if you think about what was going on here, Abraham came to the land of Canaan when he was 75 years old. And now he's 137 years old. He's been in the land for 62 years. You know, I mean, granted, he had some time that he went down and uh, out due to famine, but for 62 years now, and he has not owned property, even though this is the land that God would give to him and his descendants, or to give to his descendants, truthfully. Um, but he had been a stranger and a foreigner among this land. And then when he was sent to Canaan, he was called to go and become a great nation. 
And he was chosen because he would lead his children in the ways of God and because he demonstrated something that was critical, which was kindness, chesed. He was a man always showing hospitality and seeking to reach out to people, to love them, to bring them to know the true God. And he was called to leave his land, his relatives, his father's house, and to start anew. And in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews speaks about what Abraham was doing. He says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and in him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are, spe- they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to, opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Right. And we know ultimately this city that's prepared for them is the new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven. But within this passage, it speaks of how they were strangers, not of this world, and they were looking to something better. The thing that they were looking to that was better was not a get me out of this world, but it was actually they were active in making this world into the kingdom of God, right? And they had to go and do it by faith, believing that God was going to be going to fulfill what he had promised. Right. So we find ourselves in that same kind of a situation where we have to be following the Lord and trusting that he is going to bring about his promises. He's going to bring about the rule and reign of Yeshua and the new Jerusalem. And that's what we have to keep our, our eyes fixed on is that reality. Even when we look around and see the world is not fitting, is, is currently not fit. So this, this is something too to note. So when you think about um, Abraham, when he's going to get a, a bride for Isaac, he tells his servant to go to the land of Canaan and to, um, to find someone who is from his former land, from his household, not to take anyone from the Canaanites. And part of this is because the Canaanites would not inherit the land. They're going to be dispossessed of the land. So we cannot take that which will be dispossessed of the land and unite it with the promised seed who's going to inherit. Does that make sense? Right. So so he had to take from someone else. But just because the land of Canaan was not yet fit for the people of God didn't mean that one day they would always be unfit. One day it would be fit. And so they were looking forward to that and saying, what can we do? What's our part in bringing this about? 
And part of bringing it, bringing it about would be to get a bride who was fit for Isaac. And so Abraham's going to send his servant to go and find the bride. So let's read in Genesis 24. What? Okay, that's all right. Okay, thanks. Yeah, in fact, you know what I'll do? Um, hmm. Well, anyway, we'll do our best here. Okay. So now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. And I'm going to continue on here. Rather, okay, but go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So Isaac had to stay in the land. And Abraham was confident that God was going to fulfill his promise of providing a bride who would be fit. So he sends Eliezer. So now I say he sends Eliezer. In the scriptures, it does not actually say that this was Eliezer. It just keeps saying the servant of Abraham. But according to tradition, this was Eliezer, who was the one who had served Abraham for so many years and was the one that Abraham expected would inherit him if he was not given offspring, right? And, and as we've spoken in the past weeks, Eliezer means God is my help. So when you think about this aspect of Abraham the father sending out a helper to go and retrieve a bride for his promised seed, Isaac, you get this whole picture of God working out really a plan of redemption, right? Where the father sends the spirit to go and prepare a bride, to find a bride, to prepare a bride, to bring the bride back to the promised son, right? And and now, okay, so I'll go ahead and jump there. After the, after the bride is found, this is in Genesis 24, 62, um, Eliezer is returning with Rebekah, and the scripture says, Now Isaac came from having gone to Be'er Lahai-Roy, for he dwelt in the south country. Isaac went out to supplicate in the field towards evening. He raised his eyes and saw, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah raised her eyes and saw Isaac, and she inclined while upon the camel. And she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field toward us? And the servant said, He is my master. She then took the veil and covered herself. Okay. The servant told Isaac all the things he had done, and Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, he married Rebekah. He became, she became his wife, and he loved her. And thus was Isaac consoled after his mother. So interestingly enough, in verse 62 is the first time Isaac has appeared since the binding of Isaac. Okay? 
Now, the binding of Isaac, according to tradition, happened when he was 37 years old, just right before Sarah died. And now Isaac marries Rebecca when he's 40. So for three years, he's kind of absent from the scriptures. And so there's, uh, I don't know, I think it's a, it's a midrash that, that talks about where was Isaac. And there's this concept, this idea that he was in Gan Eden, like he was in paradise. And now at this point, he is returning from paradise when he meets his bride. Interestingly enough, right? Now, when he was offered up, this is all, this is tradition, right? So we're talking about this, you know, in the scriptures, he was offered up, but then the angels stayed Abraham's hand, right? And so Abraham did not kill Isaac. Instead, he offered were the ram that was caught in the thicket in, in Isaac's place. And of course, we know that points to the work of Yeshua where the son was offered up. But in the case of Yeshua, he did give up his life and was resurrected. Well, there, there is a midrash that talks about how, um, and this is for educational purposes, right? Or to say, okay, what were some of the teachings that were understood at the time? There's an idea that Isaac was killed, but this is midrash outside of scripture, that he was killed, but that he was resurrected. Okay, so that's kind of interesting too, right? Just in the concept that there was an idea about the son being killed and resurrected. And then there's also the idea that since Abraham came back, the scripture says Abraham came back, but it doesn't say that Isaac came back. The question is, where was he? You know, well, he could have been in Gan Eden. So this is part of the story too. If he was in Gan Eden for three years and then he comes back and finds his bride. Well, we know of someone else who, you know, died and over a period of three somethings, was in Gan Eden and came back, to, <laughs> right? And then we know, too, that he'll be coming back for his bride. And the bride will have prepared herself to meet the groom. So there's just some interesting connections there. Uh, certainly, even within the story, the spirit going out to prepare the bride and bring the bride and say, yes, that's the master. And the bride covers herself and... Then it's a really cool idea. It's a beautiful picture of what we're looking forward to with Yeshua. Now, let's see. Okay. Thinking about time-wise here. Let's... Go for it. Yeah. Just go. Go. Okay. So Genesis 24. We're going we're gonna to read about what, what transpired here with Eliezer and Rebecca. Um, I'm going to go 24 verse 9. So one before this one. Okay, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Another translation would be show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one 
whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. All right, so um, there's more to this story, of course, but Eliezer was trusting in God to lead him to the right person, and God, God had gone before, just as Abraham said, an angel had been sent before to put Rebekah there at just the right time. And then even to lead her to say, I will give you water and I'll draw for all your camels, which was no small feat. No small feat at all, right? Because camels, if they're thirsty, can drink 10 to 15 gallons of water each, from what I've read. And so you multiply that by 10, she's drawing 100 to 150 gallons of water. It's pretty impressive, right? But, you know, what, what she's doing is she's demonstrating kindness, to a stranger in hospitality that's above and beyond the norm of what would be needed, which is very much like Abraham, right? What did Abraham do? And he's sitting in pain. He sees strangers walking by and he runs to them and says, hey, stop and have a, have a bite to eat. And he gives them a huge feast, right? And so here she is and says, oh, well, I'll not only meet the request you made, but I'll actually fulfill your greater need that you didn't even ask for, right? Which I'm going to say greater because of the magnitude that was required to show that kind of loving kindness. And so she does this and confirms that she is of the character that God would be looking for for Isaac. right? Because we, we talk about Abraham exhibiting, you know, chesed and loving kindness and hospitality to a great measure. And then Isaac is one who's known of as being strength, right? Gevura. And so now God brings a mate alongside Isaac who will have that same hospitality that Abraham and Sarah had. Right. So there so God chose God chose Rebecca for her character and what she would bring to help really build this nation, this great nation that God was intending, who would be a nation that would walk in love and kindness, right? Because it's for the parents to instill that in their children. Now, with this, it's, it's interesting um, because there are some who say that Rebecca, in the way that she was acting, is not consistent with how her family acted, okay? Now, this is, a, this is an interesting one, because if we read in the scriptures here, the plain and simple, like what is the text going to say about what happens when Rebecca goes back and tells her family about this man and what he said? Well, let's just read it and let's talk about it. Okay. In Genesis 24, verse 28 through 33, Rebecca's gone back. She's told her family. 
And actually, right here she does. So the, the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, Speak on. So if we read this, we see Laban comes out and he says, Come on in and gives the camels food and gives water for them to wash their feet and then places food before Eliezer. This looks like great hospitality, right? But the scripture is very vague as to who is doing what when. Like if you, if we, what we just read, the only, we, we hear the scripture talk about Laban going to the man, but then after that it's all a bunch of he, 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 the man, and it's like, well, What's going on? Are we talking about Laban? Are we talking about Eliezer? Who's doing what? And so one of the one of the teachings I'd heard was that that Laban, you know, as we know him in his later years, he was wicked. He changed Jacob's wages a hundred times, right? And he was he was not a good man. And so then there's an assumption: well, if he was a bad man then, then he was still a bad man even at this time. But there's also the possibility that he changed over time. But we read here, and it looks like Laban was going out and being hospitable. But there's, a, there's an idea that here in verse 32, when the scripture says, So the man entered the house, the man being Eliezer, and unmuzzled the camels. He gave straw and feed for the camels and water to bathe his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Okay, There's, a, there's an understanding that this was Eliezer doing all the work. Came in, he unmuzzled the, the camels. He gave them their food. He also gave water to his own people to wash their feet, and he washed his feet. So there's an idea that there was not this great hospitality shown as as was as would have seemed the case when Laban comes out. And I was like, man, I don't know if I can get there because this kind of seems like maybe, you know, maybe Laban did it. But then I went back and read in verse 30, or like if we go back and look at Verses 28 to 33. The scripture says, Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And if we skip verse 30 and go to verse 31, it says, He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and a place for the camels. This sounds like Abraham, right? He ran out to the man and he said, Come on in. I've made a place for you. But we go back and read verse 30. And I'll read this translation. It says, For upon seeing the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's hands, and upon hearing his sister Rebecca's words, saying, Thus has the man spoken to me, he approached the man. It wasn't, Hey, there's a stranger here who we can be hospitable to? Awesome. Let me run out to him. Bring him in. But instead, wait, you're telling me this guy gave you this wealth and these riches, and he told you that he wants you to be married to a guy who has all the wealth of Abraham? Let me go out and meet this man, right? So right there in the scriptures is Laban's true heart, right? Which we see confirmed later on with changing Jacob's wage 
a hundred times and seeking to steal and to take, greed was embedded within Laban. And so he goes out and he puts on a good show. Come, blessed to the Lord, I've made space for you. Come on in. And now you come in, take care of yourself. Now come in and what gifts, what gifts are you going to give me? Right? What's, what's, what's this bride price that you're going to pay? And so when we look at this, okay, that's the culture that was going on within the, okay, I'm going to go ahead and go with this story and say this is, this is what we're going to teach from. Now, am I right? I can't say for sure, okay, but this is what we're going to, we're going to learn from. So this is what Rebecca was raised in. A place that was concerned with monetary wealth, that was greedy, that would show greatness as as like a uh, it was, but it was more of a show than an actual act, than an action that would follow. But yet she didn't allow that to define her character. When she was asked to give someone a drink of water, she quickly lowered the water, gave it to him, and said, "Not only that, I'm going to water all your camels." Right? Not knowing that there was anything in store for her. It was completely selfless, loving kindness, hospitality. So even though she may have been raised in a, in a society or in a family, in the midst of a society that did not really walk the walk, that did not have this, she was able to overcome and do what was right. right? And then that is what we, where we find ourselves today. That's our calling we talk about walking in the faith of Abraham, right, and being like him, and it's very much so too to be walking in the loving kindness of Rebecca, right, and to be walking in the steps of our mothers and fathers, right, who've taught us what is right and what is good. Let me see. Okay. And, and ultimately it comes down to she was... She was a stranger in her own land. And now Eliezer comes and says, will you come with me? Essentially saying, come with me to a land that I will show you. Leave your, leave your father's house, leave your relatives and leave your lands and come to a man I will show you. It's almost the same call that was given to Abraham. And, and in the scriptures, Laban and, and the mother are like, well, let her stay here for a year or 10 months, you know? But then when they ask her, she says, I'll go. And they go the next day. Right? So she, she had a readiness and a willingness, just like Abraham, who Abraham would get up and saddle his donkey the next morning after being told to take his son. Here she is. She's like, I'm leaving. I'm going. I'm going to pursue the will of God and walk in this calling to help build up this great nation. That's a cool thing, right? Yeah. The willingness. The loving kindness and the trust right, that she was displaying. That's, that is a major part of our calling, of being what it means to be strangers in this world and to look for this heavenly Jerusalem, right? to look for this kingdom of God to come, is this willingness to go and to follow and to, to have values that are aligned with God's word, even when the world around us does not value those and even condemns them, tramples them under underfoot. In John 13, 34 through 35, 
Yeshua makes it very clear how we're to be walking. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now again, this love is not the love that the world defines, right? Because if we are to love as the world defines, then we are not going to actually reflect the character and nature of Yeshua, right? They will not know us because we love as they define love. They will know us because we love as God has defined love. And God has defined love through sacrificial love, through loving kindness that goes above and beyond and that actually reproves and teaches what is good and what is right and says what is not the way of God versus what is the way of God and does it in a way that is is loving okay so we can get fired up up here sometimes you know and and get upset about what we see in the world and that's okay <laughs> god willing that is okay right but but the thing is you know, we're to do all this in a, in a way that, that is loving. Um, and I actually have the wrong, oh, no, I have the right scripture verse. I just looked in the wrong place. Okay. Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17, is all, says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And... So there, you know, this is the whole idea that the scripture is going to show us what is truth and we are to train each other up in it. But we do this in love. And I think that this other one, this other verse I was going to go to may actually say that. If it doesn't, it's it's in the scriptures. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, and this 1 Peter 2, 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? He's called you out of darkness into, into marvelous light. He loved you while you were in darkness, and he called you out of that and said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind through my word and spirit, and do not be conformed to this world, but instead prove what is good, acceptable, good and acceptable in the sight of God. So he's called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And I didn't, that's not actually the verse that says to reprove each other in love, but you reprove each other in love, in kindness, in grace, in mercy, so that people can actually walk out this love. Okay. Speak the truth in love. It must be in Ephesians. <laughs> <laughs> must be. But um all right, so let's see, so from here I just want to stay more you know, I'd I'd wanted to go into John seventeen a little bit, but let's um Let's not, let's not go there, but what Yeshua talks about in the high priestly prayer is this aspect of unity and love and obedience and faithfulness. And his, his desire, his prayer for God to unify us. Right? And as we go through this, as we navigate these waters and in, in this 
uh, world that we're currently in, that aspect of unity and love of one another and caring for each other, bearing each other's burdens, it's critical to critical critical to our walk. In First John three, did I already read this? No, I did not. Sixteen through eighteen, um, the scripture says, "By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him?" Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth, right? Because that's the deed and the truth of love that is carried out. Is that, that is the thing that transforms the world, not the words, like the words of Laban coming out and saying, "Oh, look, come and be, you know, be taken care of. Now take care of yourself." No, it's going out and serving and doing. Just kind of circle back on the aspect of what we talked about earlier as we as we wrap up here. You know, we we do have we do live in challenging times, right? Challenging times where we may not see where where the uh, solution is going to come from. But the the first place that the solution comes from is from within us, overflowing to change the world. And it's, that's part of the renewing of our minds and saying, okay, we are residents of another world and we're going to act in accordance with the laws of that kingdom such that that kingdom can be manifest. And it's manifest in the small things, one-on-one. It's, it's manifest in larger things, but it begins small and it grows. And I think, did we, I don't know if we talked about this last week, but you know, the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed that grows into this tree. And then it's like the leaven that's placed in a, in a three sayas of flour that then spreads and fills the whole thing. That's the way our faith and our righteousness and loving kindness towards one another is to be carried out, to grow, and to become that nation that Abraham set out to become through loving kindness, through truth, and then passed on from generation to generation in strength. Um, Okay, so I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then Jared's going to come up and talk about the month, the next month, month of Kislev. All right, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that we are called to love and to walk in truth, to love in truth, to walk in truth, and to be agents of change and transformation in this world. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us, encourage us, give us a vision and a hope for the future, Lord, that you are still on the throne that the schemes of the world may be uh, in full swing. But Lord, you sit on the throne and you scoff at those who seek to build their own kingdom. And Lord, that you will establish Yeshua on the throne. And his kingdom will know no end. Lord, we ask for his coming soon and quickly. Lord, we ask for your love, true love, to be in this world, and transforming the world. We bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen.
we are coming up into the month of Kislev. We have about one more week left of Hesfan. So if you're really enjoying this month, you got one more week left. Um, so uh, Kislev, um, and keep in mind too, like the names of the month were given while the the Jews were in exile in Babylon. So, uh, and that's usually a meaning behind the, um, I guess, what's going on in that month in the spirit realm as well. So that's just something to think about. Uh, so the name is Kislev. Uh, it starts next week, Thursday night on the 4th. Um, it is the ninth month of the biblical month, uh, and it is the third month of the civil calendar. Uh, so the meaning of Kislev and the kind of like uh, this month is trust and hope. Um, the blessing for this month is sleep and dreams. Yes. So, <laughs> so, uh, so God bless your sleep and may God bless your dreams. Um, the areas of healing uh, that usually is worked on in this month is trust issues with God. Um, the actions needed uh, for that is to let whatever amount of light you have shine. So don't wait until you feel like you've got enough to go out and shine. Just shine with what you've got uh, and then let God multiply that. Um, the virtues and values of character development this month is gratitude, compassion, and helpfulness. Uh, some of the themes for this month is dreams, uh, miracles is a theme this month, oil, cleansing the temple, overcoming great odds, and rededication. So I see a lot of connection uh, with that of overcoming great odds and a rededication. Uh, um, the holidays and feasts uh, is Hanukkah, which is the feast of dedication and also known as the festival of lights. Um, so Kislev is most known for the celebration of Hanukkah. But before that, let's look at a couple of other things. So this is also the month of dreams. Um, so the weekly Torah portions for this month usually contain more dreams than any other month uh, in this time. So there are 10 dreams recorded in the Torah, and nine of them, at least nine, are usually discussed during the month of Kislev. Uh, so dreams are one of the ways that God talks to us. So this is a good time to ask God to give you a dream for what he's calling you to do at this time. Uh, so it is a focus point. It's, a, it's, you know, it's just that, that veil is just closer. So God is really more willing to work in dreams. Not saying he doesn't work in dreams any other time of the year. But for some reason, during this time of year, which is also, we'll get to the point, this is also the month of darkness, God works in dreams. It's a time to specifically say, God, give me a dream. All right. So God, right now, give us dreams this month to complete or just to confirm what you have called us to do to help bring your kingdom here on earth. Amen. So this is also a month of darkness. So Kislev is also usually the darkest year or the darkest month of the year. As the days progressively get shorter and the nights get longer, the winter solstice is usually in the month of Kislev. This year, Kislev is like a month earlier. <laughs> it's very early this year. Uh, and so, um, in fact, we'll notice Hanukkah starts literally the Sunday night after Thanksgiving. Uh, so it's usually, it's very early, but still Kislev is basically, it's that, it's that month of winter. 
It's the dreams. That's darkness, which is great because then we get to light candles in the darkness, let our light shine. Um, five stories that happen in the month of Kislev in the, uh, in the Torah. Ezra 10, there is the confession of improper marriages. In Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah prays for his people. In Jeremiah chapter 36, um, Baruch read from the scroll that Jeremiah instructed him to write and the things they needed to repent of. Um, Haggai 2, the Lord calls out the defiled nature of Israel. In Zechariah 7, the Lord calls out Israel's fasting. And he basically says, did you really fast for me? Um, these themes, the five stories, is basically saying, repent. These are areas of God really calling out Israel, saying, it's time to repent. It's a time of repentance. Um, uh, it's always time. We can always repent. So just want to throw that in there, too. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, in the... Uh, the storyline is if unrighteousness goes unchecked and unchallenged, it eventually allows the darkness to have rule and reign over your lives. So there you go. Um, and that also brings us into the story of Hanukkah. So the story of Hanukkah comes in. It's the, it starts on Kislev the 25th. Uh, this year it's Sunday night, uh, November 28th. And it goes for eight days and it usually ends around the second or third of Tibet. Um, it's the only celebration that spans into the next month. So therefore, there's always a new moon during Hanukkah. Uh, the story is about Antiochus and the abomination and desolation of the second temple and is told in the book of uh, 1 Maccabees. Um, so within the story, Antiochus invaded Jerusalem, attacks the Jewish people, vandalizes the temple, loots everything from the temple, eradicated an idol, on the altar and desecrates its holiness with the blood of pig and swine. So not only that, Antiochus issued decrees that forbade circumcision, Sabbath observance, kosher diets, and the story of and the study of Torah. Basically, try to get rid of the Jewish way of life. So if you were found doing any of these, you were put to death. Many Jews chose to comply with the new laws just to save their life, but some did not such as Matiehu, along with his five sons, who fled to the hills and caves in the Judean wilderness, and eventually Judah, his son, took charge of the small group of people after Matiehu's death. So, then three years later, Judah and a small group of zealous Torah-observant Jews took on thousands of the Seleucid army, and then eventually, through though they were severely overmatched, fought battle after battle, after battle, and then they eventually overtook Jerusalem, which if you think about it, is the real miracle of the story of Hanukkah. So one victory was held by the Jews. They meet once victory was held by the Jews. They immediately started the process of restoring the temple. And on the 25th of Kislev, exactly three years after the first swine had been sacrificed on the altar, Judah reinstated the daily burnt offerings in the temple. The story is that the, they only had enough oil to keep the menorah lit for one day, but it stayed lit for eight days, which was long enough to get reserves and then more oil to keep the menorah uh, going. So the eight-day celebration also corresponds with the festival of Sukkot. There's a lot of tradition of that. They wanted to re, um, do that. Um, but it is a time of being zealous for God's law, 
for God's ways of life and not giving in to the culture around you. Um, and so this is a time for dreams. It's a time for light to shine in the darkness. It is a time for miracles. Uh, and it is a great, exciting month ahead of us. So let's, let's pray. It's like, may God, may it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, that you renew for us a good month in our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.